another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. And you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook at Justin Bizarro. You can also find the podcast at Justin the Food Entrepreneur's on Facebook and Instagram. And also, thank you everyone for listening to our new podcast. I know everyone... We've split the podcast into two pieces. We used to do Motivational Mondays and sort of some inspirational stuff, but we've split that into a different podcast called The Centurion Leadership Battalion. You can find that on Apple uh, Podcasts, Podbean, as well as Spotify right now. Uh, Google Play will be going up over the next week. Again, that's The Centurion Leadership Battalion with Justin Bizarro. We talk a lot about leadership and inspiration on that podcast. This podcast is now solely for the food entrepreneurs and the interviews we do with them, and the inspiration and messages they're telling everyone, and lessons from being food and beverage entrepreneurs. So we've split it into two out of the request of a lot of our fans. Um, Some wanted one thing, some wanted to listen to the other, so we've split it into two for all of you guys. The other thing is, uh, thank you everyone for the support on the Food and Beverage Entrepreneur Summit in Milledgeville, Georgia, uh, June 3rd and 4th. We are still planning on having the event, depending how things go. Like we've said before, you can get your free tickets on Eventbrite. Registered guests, if we end up not having a face-to-face summit in Milledgeville, Georgia on June 3rd and 4th, we will be doing it all online. So if you have a registered ticket, you will get a, a notification. We will be doing it all through YouTube and all through Facebook uh, live. So you can interact through that. We can do interactions through that and work around the current situation. I don't want to cancel anything or postpone something. I want to make sure we're all moving forward and we have hope and a place to go, even if it's online. So thank you, everyone, for registering for the summit. We have over 400 people registered, so that's pretty cool. And I still see the numbers going up every day amongst what's going on in the world right now. So that is very hopeful that all of us are knowing that we're going to get through this and that there is a future beyond the current pandemic that's going on with the coronavirus. So that being said, I have a special guest with us today. He's he's back on, but this time we're going to talk about a different business that he's involved in, although the two are sort of, are now tied together. And that is Eric Belge of Forerunner Foods from Woodstock, Georgia. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm great, Justin. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. How are you today? I'm doing very well. I mean, all of us could be better, obviously, but I think um, one day at a time, right? Just get through today and we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. That's right. And that's that's always been our approach before things. But it's in light of current events, it is is very important that we focus day to day, task to task and just keep moving forward. Yeah, I agree with that 100 percent. So that being said, let's sort of talk about Forerunner Foods. Um, if you guys remember, we talked about Eric's and I'll let you talk about how you combine the companies and, and under one brand. And I want to make sure we talk about that. But Eric's been on the podcast before, and so this is not Eric's first go-around. But I want to ask you, Eric, let's talk about Forerunner Foods, the concept, and how you were already creating hope in your communities and with the farmers in your local area before you you started um, down the road of what we're dealing with now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we did touch on it a, a little bit on the previous podcast with Flux Ice Cream. Um, but it's, it's great to kind of take it back and, and get a big picture look and, and a little history with it. 
Um, so we started Forerunner Foods. Uh, I, I say we a lot. It, it, it's really just me. It just makes me sound like it's more than a one-man show from the start. Um, but we started this about four years ago. And my, my background, I have a business degree. I, I worked in the commercial insurance industry, which I, oddly enough, I, I liked. I was good at it. It made sense to me. What, what didn't make sense to me was uh, large corporate America and the culture that comes with working in a large corporation. Um, there are a lot of perks to it and a lot of things we're seeing today that are great perks. But overall, it, it was not a lifestyle choice that I was comfortable with. And in that, I, I went back to trying to figure out, well, what do I do? You know, what I want to do something that I like. I want to do something that I'm good at. I want to do something that matters. And most importantly, I've got a lot of bills to pay. So what am I going to do? And I, it took me a while to figure it out. But I kept coming back to my roots of being in a, a semi-rural area where our neighbors were farmers when I was kids and when I was a kid and living in a household that has a multi-ethnic background. So we got exposed to lots of different food. And my favorite thing as a kid was when my dad took me to any of the, uh, you know, the Asian markets or the, you know, African markets or the Mexican markets. And you went and you, maybe they didn't speak English at all, but you got exposed to so much cool food and so many cool ingredients and, and really absorbed all that culture. And so that was always what I came back to, the, my, my love of food and, and, and all parts of the supply chain, not just being a chef and not just running a restaurant or not just being a farmer, but how food in general works. And, and that was something I was always fascinated with. Now, fast forward a little bit while I'm still finishing my job at, at the insurance company, I, I stayed too long. I, I burnt out. I had nothing left. I, I wanted nothing to do with, with anything to do with business. And just decided, okay, I, I love food. I believe in it. I believe in people being self-sustainable. You know, we should be farmers. That's what I want to do. And, you know, in my head, you know, I knew that would be difficult, but I, I was okay with the difficulty of the hard work, the physical labor, the just the, the tremendous amount of effort that goes into running a small-scale farm. But what I didn't want to do is I didn't want my family to be poor and struggle. Um, it's not fair to my wife and kids to put them in that position. And so I started doing a little bit of research and talking to a lot of people to find out, okay, if I'm going to pursue this, how do I do it? How do I make this work? And what happens is, is here in, in the metro Atlanta area, and, and I would suspect in a lot of other areas, there's not a lot of distribution for small farms. You go to your local farmer's market on Saturday, and if during the summer when the weather's great, you're going to do really well. I mean, the, a lot of those guys do okay. And then if it rains, you make no money that week. And that was not something I was okay with putting my family through. The, there's too much instability. There's too much. There's too many issues with that. That's not a way to provide for your family. And so I started trying to figure out, okay, well, what would my farm do, my hypothetical farm do that's different? And started talking to some chef friends and seeing what else was out there and what teaching myself what the food supply chain looks like and realized, man, there's a huge disconnect between farmers and chefs. You, you would think that they should be the best of friends. And, and the reality is they don't talk. They live very different lifestyles. They're both extremely busy. There's no way to coordinate between the two. Yeah, there's no and, collaboration where collaboration should be. Exactly. And so you're instead of being able to buy local strawberries that are harvested because it's the perfect week in Georgia, 
you have to go to your your broadliner who gets them out of Mexico because that's just what they have. And that's the only at that scale, that's the only way to do it. And so what we realized is I, as a farmer, would need multiple restaurants to be able to support and multiple and restaurants would need multiple farms. And so there was this big gap in the industry of how do we just connect these two? And that was the direction we went with Forerunner. Uh, when we first launched, all we did was go door to door and say, hey, this farmer down the street has this. Are you interested? Can I deliver it to you tomorrow? And and that quickly found support because it was definitely something needed, but it also was not enough to run a company. And so from there, over the last, I'd say, four years, we've evolved into all, that always being our model. But now we do everything, any product in the world you can get from us. We work just like the big broadliners. But we do it in a way that's more hands-on, that provides higher quality, more of a consulting type account management feel so that you're not stuck with just whatever the big guys can get you. I like that a lot. So, I mean, talk about how do you, let's talk about how do you find the farmers? I mean, how do you build these relationships? And then how do you build the relationships with the restaurants? I mean, so you're looking at sales basically in two directions. I got to get the farmers to put their produce through us and and then I've got to find the restaurants and stuff that are interested in our product. Yes, I mean that's that's assault that's essentially that's 100% of what we do. And and it is you you are a middleman but you so see you're working in two opposite directions at all times. We we got our start with farmers by going to local farmers markets and just introducing ourselves asking, you know, do you have surplus at the end of the week? Do you have things could you grow things for us if there's demand for things? It just started those conversations. Um, you know, that was a little bit easier because there's no real commitment on their end. It's, hey, I'd like to help. I'd like to learn about your business. Let's build the relationship. And, and that certainly was a lot easier than having to go and find the chefs and say, hey, I want to take place of your, you know, insert the name of major broadliner. And I want to supplement your stuff with local produce. Yes, I know 10 people have tried before me and failed we're going to figure it out. And so certainly that side has been much tougher. What I would say has been our biggest benefit has been, we just, you just do good work. You work hard. Your, your word means things, your quality means things and you will grow. And we, we grow mostly by word of mouth. We don't do a lot of advertisement. We just hired our first sales rep uh, this 2020, this calendar year. Uh, So we went four years without a sales rep and we just, we were able to grow. And I want to make a point about something actually in, in what you just said is that, yeah, the 10 people before you guys, and one of the things there's 10 people who have failed. Um, so there's the ability to learn of how they failed potentially. That's one. Um, the other part is, is just because other people failed doesn't mean you can't find success. In it. And I think people get scared of that as entrepreneurs, but the, the key is, is, why did the other people fail a lot in what you're doing is because they try to take a traditional model and put it towards the same thing. And so you're going head to head with some of the broadliners and stuff like that versus changing it ever so slightly the way that you have. You didn't go to the big farms and try to convince them to do their product or you didn't go to the big restaurant chains and try to get them to do it. You know, a lot of people before you tried to do that. And what you did is you went to the local farmers who are already at the farmer's market selling directly to the consumers. And you went to the restaurants that are more local that you could build relationships with. And I think that that's huge. And that's your ability to grow right there is 
there's a whole untapped market and ability to connect people that you did that other people didn't see before. People just thought they could do it and get the food there and get it there and they'd sit in their offices and they never had to build the relationships. Your advantage, and I'm going to read between the lines, was that you didn't have a salesperson and you were probably the guy out there building the relationship with the farmers and the restaurants. So you got to build relationships to build your business. Yes, that that you hit the nail on the head with that. And, and that still hasn't changed. I mean, as we scale, that will change a little bit, but we're trying to stick to our core values. We we have one sales guy and I and I handle most of the sales. Uh, if you see our trucks driving around the metro Atlanta area, that number on the truck is still my cell phone number. It, the little things like that that we committed to in the start are what going to are what are going to continue our success as we grow. Yeah, I love that. So I mean, let's talk about the growth over the last four years. I mean, and let's talk about the kind of produce that is available right now because we're we're talking about seasonality is an effect. Um, are you freezing food? Are you doing it fresh? Let's really dive into sort of what are some of the things you're offering. And let's talk about since we're right now in March, what's that seasonality look like in your offerings? Sure. Yeah. And let me, before we do that, let me back up to give some clarification on some things. Our, our model, you alluded to it, is extremely different than the large broadliners. Our, our model has been, you know, on day one, we didn't have a warehouse and we didn't have big walk-ins and we didn't have money for food. You know, we just, it was day at a time, just like it is today. And so we, we've never had really much inventory. We, we've run an inventory list produce company, which is as far as I can tell, unheard of. And what started at a necessity because I couldn't afford to do this, you know, quote unquote, the right way turned into now that we can afford to do it the right way, our chefs are asking us not to. So what we do instead of buying a pallet of tomatoes out of California right now, because somebody has to get that bottom box on that pallet, there's no way around that. We work with different distributors and different farmers to say, okay, if we sold three boxes of tomatoes today, I'm only going to buy three boxes of tomatoes. And it does a couple of things for us. One, it minimizes our overhead so we can financially stay solvent during times like this, hopefully. Uh, two, it allows us to minimize our waste, which is also very helpful and very important to us in this industry. And three, it gets better quality to the chefs. You know, in, in the middle of January, when we're not growing much of anything in Georgia, we have to get tomatoes out of California. And yes, they're probably, or the commodity tomatoes out of Mexico or or wherever they're coming from, they're not the best. But if our model can help make it 5%, 10% better, then everybody wins. And what I mean by that is these pallets of tomatoes are coming from Mexico in January. And when they hit Metro Atlanta, we buy what we need and then they go directly to your restaurant. So instead of sitting in a warehouse for four, eight, 12 weeks, you're getting them straight into your restaurant that day. We usually hold product for somewhere between 30 minutes to six hours. And, and that's it. That's our only, um, only time that we have ownership of that product. So if we can get these commodity tomatoes that aren't ideal, aren't perfect, into your restaurant a week earlier, and that gives you an extra week of shelf life, then you're providing value to the restaurants on top of everything. So it's, we can have access to local things. We have access to specialty things. And then we have this model that hopefully helps extend shelf life. And we work with chefs to help them with that because all we're looking to do is not for them to spend more money. 
but to help save them money or help them be more efficient. And then we're going to put that money towards local produce, supporting local things or whatever they want to do to take the direction of their restaurant. And I want to emphasize what you just said, Eric, because I think it's educating the consumer. It's educating other food and beverage entrepreneurs that are on this podcast because it always amazes me how in the food and beverage entrepreneur space that a lot of food and beverage entrepreneurs and restaurant owners don't actually understand the supply chain because of the interaction with so many big companies that sort of just deliver the food to their door. They're not understanding, to your point, that those tomatoes have been off a vine for maybe even up to a week and a half before it gets to your door. You know, Mm -hmm. and at Food Service Partners, where we order volumes upon volumes, and we have to order these volumes of food, that food sometimes is like only has three days before we have to process it. We have to process it so quickly and get it into a food or a tomato sauce or a pizza sauce or whatever it is in in the tomato scenario because there's not hardly any shelf life left by the time it gets to us. So, you know, what we're doing and what I love about your model is how do you find people that work locally with you that are actually getting the food right from the farm right to you within a 24-hour period? Because then you do have that shelf life and that flexibility and it's not coming from some other place. You know, we there's blueberries galore we grow in the United States, but during the off season, we ship them from Chile. You know, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of nutrients left in that blueberry by the time it gets to us on, you know, and we're on the health side. So you start noticing things like that, you know? And so what you're doing is you're creating people, giving people the ability to hold their product longer, which gives them longer opportunity to make profit off of that product. That's one. Number two is, is the products just going to be better? You, they're not picking it off the vine earlier in a lot of cases and hoping it ripens later. They can get it when it's fresh from you and and it's fully developed and it has its full flavor profile and its full nutritional profile. And then they're getting it in the restaurant. So those are two very key things that we don't understand as consumers, uh, particularly in the United States, that that part of our food chain is important. It's important that we let the product ripen. It's important that we have that natural shelf life that goes right to where it's going to be consumed. And then the other part, like I said, is the value that's nutritional value that enhances the flavor, enhances the nutritional value by leaving it on the vine longer. So those are two important things that I think you're just naturally doing. The other thing I wanna talk about that Eric highlighted on for the audience, for any entrepreneurs that are out there, is he talked about lack of money or needing to be frugal in the beginning of his business, and it forced him to do his business model differently. Everyone thinks that when you're an entrepreneur, and I do this all the time, we don't heavily fund new businesses we form, and, and on my side, Deborah and I, and we don't heavily fund or put a ton of money into something at the beginning. Why? Well, if it loses, some, if it fails, I don't want to lose the money. But by not putting money into it, the likelihood of it failing becomes less because you have to be more maneuverable. And that's what Eric did is he had less money. So he built a different business model, right? He had less money and wanted to be frugal. So he became the sales guy and the person building the relationships on the forefront, his cell phone number still on the truck. So Eric, I think that those, that the lack of money is often an advantage to a business because what you're trying to do when you start a business is do it differently than everyone else. You know, it's like if I'm going to have a cookie, 
there's a lot of people that have cookie shops or cookies in the grocery store. How's my cookie going to be different? But you have to force yourself into that space and it may not be fun, but it's where you were and you came up with this different business model. Yes, that's absolutely it. And and I think that's, I would say one of the major takeaways from today, but also just what we've kept in the back of our mind is there is a lot of value in bootstrapping your own way. And it is hard and is going to force you to make tough decisions, but it's going to make you a better leader, a better business person, a better company by doing so. And one of the analogies I like to explain to people is saying, you know, you're, you're looking at a family that's living paycheck to paycheck and what they're doing and how efficient they're being and what they need to do to survive. That's where a lot of companies are. And if you take you take the guy who wins the lottery, well, what happens? They typically blow through it and they file bankruptcy in a few years. You know, that's not what you want to do with your company. And we've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it again, us being in the same space of other companies, other competitors who took a lot of money really early and it didn't work out for a lot of them. Yep. And that's the, you know, the, the hard part about investors. Um, they may come in or you may get your angel investor or your investment banking or whatever, but your model's going to change. You have that amount of money. You're going to put a lot of money into changing your model. You're going to shortcut, take a lot of shortcuts and rob yourself of a lot of educational lessons that you need to go through as an entrepreneur to grow your business. You know, it's great that those people are out there that want to help you out. And I agree with it. There's times for it, but there's also times for, I just need to get through this and learn my lesson. And this would be a great scenario um, that we're dealing with right now in the world, which is how do I get through the hard times if I've never experienced them when something like what's going on right now with the coronavirus goes on, I don't have the know-how and the experience on how to weather that storm because I didn't build my business through bootstrapping in the first place. So we're back to the basics of bootstrapping right now, potentially with the way the economy is going. So if I didn't have that experience in the past, I've now robbed myself of the ability to do it in the future. Yes, you hundred percent are. And, and that's where, you know, as entrepreneurs, I, I think we, we tend not to ride with a safety net, uh, not, not traditionally. And, and I always explain to people, I, I traded my safety net for freedom yeah. and, and there's pros and cons to that, but creating a business the way that we did through just through failures, we tried something, it didn't work. We tried something else. It didn't work. Um, and also through just belief in ourselves. We, when I started this, I thought I knew the food industry. I knew nothing. I still know nothing about the food industry <laughs> where, you know, there's just so much to know. Um, you know, I, I think marriage prepared me for being in a world where I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so I, I certainly thank my wife for preparing me for this, but we, we don't know what we're doing. Nobody does. Yeah. And so we just, we find opportunities. We use the best, you know, use our judgment as best we can, but forerunner exists because I would go talk to a chef and said, Hey, I, I have these onions and they say, Oh, those are great. Do you have mushrooms? Well, no, I don't. But I told him yes. And I went and found mushrooms and that's just how we built a business. And now having like 1200 products available, you just, you just say yes and you figure it out. Yeah. And uh, the model that you're doing, it's a, the pull through, like, let's give people what they want. Let's not try to sell them what we have in stock. And I think that's a, a great point right there as well as we often try to sell everyone everything and offer everyone everything under the sun because we want to make money but 
it's not necessarily what people want. And if you don't have those relationships with people, you actually don't know what they want. So yeah, hundred percent. And, and, and like I said, I, I don't know what chefs want or how they operate their business. So instead of guessing, I just ask them. And I think that's a, an incredible, important, incredibly important thing that any business owner can do is truly listen to your customers. We, I, when I started my first few months and we were doing, you know, just hyper local, just small scale things grown in the Metro Atlanta area, you know, a, a chef said, Hey, this is great, but I got to place this produce order with you and another produce order with someone else. And so I realized my option was, okay, do what the other produce companies do in, you know, in addition to what I'm doing or I'm going out of business. So we did, we, you know, chefs kept saying, Hey, all of the broadliners have a cutoff time at five or 6 PM, but we haven't gotten through our dinner rush yet. How do I know what I'm supposed to order? Yeah, that's a really good point. Why would I cut it? You send me your order when you need it. Yep. And what evolved through all of that is what's truly a concierge service. We, you might get products from me and I'll send you a truck full of products, but I don't sell products. I sell a service. Yep. And that's something we hammer into all our employees all the time. All we have is service. We own no products. And regardless of what goes on the trucks, we are service, service, service. So we don't have to be anything to anybody because we have the, we don't have the inventory. I'm not trying to push a product and chefs respond really well to that, but sometimes it, it takes some education. Um, for example, one of the things we run into a lot of times is we'll talk to a new chef who's heard about us, who wants to work with us and they say, okay, well send me your products, offerings and prices and I'll let you know. And I yeah. said, I, I can't, we don't, that doesn't exist. What, you know, you tell me what you need and I'll, I'll make something specific to you. Yep. You don't have like you don't have to sort through my catalog. I don't have a catalog. Just tell me what you need, where you need help, and let me let's work this out together. And we get a little pushback from that because it's not traditional. But once people get in there and understand what we do, you know, we're we handle Peruvian restaurants and we handle Mexican restaurants and we handle Chinese restaurants and we handle farm to table American restaurants and we handle grab and go counter service. We gra- we do fine dining. There's no, there's no need for me to give a master list of all that stuff. It's, it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. Here's how our services can help you. And let me show you that specifically and not worry about, well, here's my sales pitch and call me if you need anything. Yeah. And I like that a lot. And I want to make this point because it's interesting. You're customizing based on the relationship with the customer. And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a very specific relation based incentive. And it's interesting because, um, on the on the healthcare and feeding side and the hospital side, we do the same thing. Everyone, we don't lock ourselves into broadliner contracts. We don't lock ourselves into any contract with any supplier. Why? Because we need the flexibility to customize our solutions for every hospital, for every long-term care home. And they do the same thing. You don't have a set menu. You don't have a set set of recipes. No, we customize it around your population, around what you guys like and the diets that are necessary that you guys want. You know, and mm-hmm. everyone's always like, what, what, what do you mean? I'm like, no, let's just walk through this. So I want to serve you better food at the prices that you need me to sell them at. So we customize it around what the what your population likes, you know, demographically or whether it's in that long-term care home, what they like or what the foods that they like. And then we customize that around the price that you guys need to pay us. And so we build the menu with you. We don't provide you with a menu. And there, it's always like this whole thing of what? 
you know, like that that's not the way it's been done before. We're used to just having someone tell us what we need to put on the menu. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, that's just not the way it works. And then once they get involved, and it's the same with you, once they open up their eyes, you're giving those restaurants more flexibility in their menus for specials, for all that. You're customizing what they need. They may have an idea, oh, I want bok choy. You know, oh, I can get you bok choy, and it's, and I can get it available or something like that. And, you know, what's seasonal? Well, let me tell you what I have right now that's coming in that's seasonal, and you're building a relationship with them. And I think that that's, that's so key. The other thing that you said and I want to make this point is even if I had as Justin Bizarro, Eric's plan for his business, he could give me his exact playbook, but I couldn't actually go run the business or be successful as Eric is right now because I'm not Eric. And I think a lot of people worry about stealing plans or whatever. And I just told you how food service partners basically does the model. And Eric just told you how he does his model. But the thing is, is the person that's actually behind it is Eric. He's the personality that built the business. So Eric is the guy who's also the business, you know, they, they are one in the same. So that's a point that I just want to make, Eric, because I can feel it in your personality. I can feel it in the way you build relationships. I can feel it in, I literally emailed or texted, maybe it was DM. I DM'd Eric yesterday, and he literally got back to me right away. Yeah, I'll do the podcast tomorrow. You know, And then we went back and forth on the telephone. So that's the type of guy Eric is at Forerunner Foods. He's going to respond. You're not going to get someone else. You're going to get Eric. And I think that's pretty cool. And even if your salesperson has something going on, I've got to assume that you're there um, to talk to as well. Yes, that that's it. And, and I think you touched on something hugely important for anybody who's either in their own business or trying to start their own business is that yes, there's going to be somebody who does similar things to you in different ways, but nobody's going to do it the way you do it. And it's best to, I think when I first started, I thought I needed to hide that. I needed to, I didn't want people to know that that was my cell phone number. I I wanted people to think it was coming to some great big office. And I didn't want people to think like this was our only truck. I wanted it to seem like we had, you know, bigger than we were. When the reality is the chefs want to know that, hey, when you call me, I'm going to be there. Yes, this is my cell phone. I've always been there. I'll answer that. But we're going to do it in our way. So embracing who you are, where you are, your personal story and that personal touch is 100% what is going to start your business and get it off the ground. Um, and and that, that shifted a little bit for us now that we're about four years in because we, you know, we've bootstrapped for four years and, and we're looking to go bigger and, and we will need investors or we will need money. And we will need to scale. And so that's where we've been right now is we have this model of, you know, three or four guys, a couple trucks on the road. How do you scale that? Is this model even scalable? Um, The answer is yes, but that's yet to be seen exactly how that works. But it it is hard when you do something different that it, you know, there's plenty for everybody, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to service five restaurants for the rest of my life. I need to do more. Yeah. And and trying to figure out how do you take this personal approach and this service that we created, and then I, I need ten more Eric's. You know that doesn't exist. So what are we what are we going to do instead? No, and I I like that. And there's that's the thing. And I think people usually see hardship as um, a blockade or something you have to go around over and under. But really, hardship is just a question, right? And what, how we handle hardship is the same way we handle growth. 
you know, we handle them the same way. How do I do this? Or what's the question I need to answer? You know, and you just said it. One of them is, I, you know, I need 10 Eric's. Well, there are not 10 Eric's. So how do I scale my business? That's true to my business. And no one else, no one's going to do it the same, but only, you know, the real answer because you're so involved in your business because you have grown it over the last four years that you understand the model. You didn't take money. You didn't outsource it. You did, you did it for you and you did it yourself. And that's an important thing. Um, so Eric, I want to take it a little bit in, in a different direction because we are going through somewhat of a hard time right now. The restaurants are obviously not having people in it. People are talking about 10 or less people with the coronavirus. We, the last episode, everyone, please listen to it with Snack Attack out of Fort Collins, Colorado. We talk a lot about restaurants and how they're being impacted by what's going on right now. And the long-term effect on the supply chain and Eric's in the supply chain. He is the supply chain in a lot of ways for a lot of restaurants. So Eric, let's talk a little bit about what's going on and what you're seeing um, right now. Sure. Uh, it, it, it's changing quickly. So it's, you know, I, hour by hour, we're finding new things and things are changing, but I, I would suspect what's going on here is, is similar to what's going on in the rest of the nation is that we, people aren't going out to eat. And, and that's really the bottom line right now. And, and rightfully so there's, there's reasons not to, and, and there's safety concerns and, and things that we just need to get through this. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but it, you know, we can only do so much, but all these restaurants that aren't, aren't serving people and aren't cooking are a, a large majority of our customers. And, you know, we're, we won't sugarcoat it. It's not pretty right now. We're, we're probably operating at about 10% of our revenue. And so, you know, but everyone is. And so we're trying to look at it and say, hey, we're, we're in this boat together. What what are we able to do? What can we do? And what we've seen here is most of the restaurants are there's still a few open. They've allowed us to stay open, though. I don't think that will last for much longer. And they they're trying to pivot or most of them are. You, you adapt or you die. That's just the way business works. And the unfortunate side of coronavirus right now is, is it's happening really fast. So what, what I'm seeing in my own personal assessment is a very quick separation from people who understand it and people who don't. The people who understand it are shutting down their kitchens and putting curbside or going into a delivery model or doing something to help their need because their customers have changed. Their customers are no longer the couple who have a night out away from the kids and want to find steak dinner. It's those two same people but they just don't want to cook for their kids for another night in a row. And so you're seeing a lot of adaption that way. You're seeing people, everybody's trying to adopt a delivery model. Everybody's, everybody's just trying something because that's, you know, the end of the day, that's all we have. We will either make it or we won't, but we personally will not be that company that goes down without a fight. And, and I don't think you're going to see an industry, an industry can't disappear. Uh, it might be ugly for a while, you will see some people make it and some people won't, but the supply chain of food doesn't disappear. So we know that it, there will always be something for us to come back to and rebuild. We just have to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I think that's so important that you said in where you are in the supply chain is that you're in this together with the restaurants. You're in this together with them, your partners, you know, 
And while they're your clients, you understand that you share their customers because they buy your food indirectly through your partnership with this client or restaurant or whatever, however you want to refer to them as. So ultimately, the consumer or the customer in all of these places, they are changing. And it's not something that's just trended and changed over time. No, this is an immediate change in the way people are consuming food from restaurants, from whatever. And to your point, if you don't pivot and you don't understand that consumer, you're screwed. And whether you're in the supply chain like Eric is, or you're the restaurant, you better get to very quickly to a point of pivoting and understanding that consumer and how they're buying now. What is important to them? They're spending a lot of time at home. That means a lot of time in front of their computer, in front of their things. How do you reach these people now? Because they're not coming into your restaurant. Things like that are are becoming so important. And you know, now's the time to perfect skills and social media and stuff and reach out to your fans or the people that follow you on Instagram and, and Facebook because you've got to start letting them know that you are pivoting, that you are doing carry out or delivery or grab and go or so on and so forth. Because you're right, Eric, at some point, I'm not going to want to keep eating at home for days on end. I still need to get out of here. I'm quarantined. And so maybe not getting out of here is actually leaving, but it's the ability to just have food delivered to my house. Yes, absolutely. And we're, we're, we've seen a couple big trends lately. Um, one, and, and this is probably just a guess, but I think people are realizing they're not as great at cooks as they thought they were. You know, you're used to going out cooking one or two meals at home and you can only have meatloaf and spaghetti so many times. And so there, there is a place for these restaurants and, and these food providers and chefs or caterers or whatever it looks like to help fill in those gaps. So there, there is hope in that sense. Um, the other thing that we've seen, uh, two other quick things, the, it confirmed for me the idea that healthy food, good food, quality food is still a luxury item in people's minds because right now you're seeing the stores being ransacked for potatoes and onions and frozen food and bulk cheap ground meat beef and all these things. And I'm not saying that's the wrong choice right now in, with given the current state, but we have a lot of farmers who can't move. They're really incredibly nutrient dense food because it's less important. It's just not a priority to people. And that was something we sort of always suspected with our analysis of the market is that people still see what we do supporting locally from homegrown, naturally grown, really amazing produce. That's still a luxury item for people. And it's not like it was 100 years ago when that was the priority and those were the most amazing things. And you might splurge on a McDonald's, Um, you know, there's still that shift. We still haven't gotten through that. So that's a fight we have to fight when things kind of stabilize. And the other thing we're seeing is that you're going to have to just adapt as you go and you're going to have to follow, you know, do the best you can as a restaurant. But a lot of what you have to ride on your safety net air, you know, your air quote safety net you have is already in place for you. So if you, if you are a restaurant or a chef or a company that has an amazing local following, you're involved with the local community, people know you, they know what you do. They're out there supporting you. The Facebook and Instagram are full of people trying to support each other locally and word of mouth is spreading about, Oh, this restaurant's doing this, or these people are doing that. They're, they're here and people want to help. People don't want to see us disappear, but If you're on the flip side, the restaurant or the company that 
kind of stuck to themselves and don't have a community following and don't have those advocates out in the community for you, or you were the restaurant that was known to maybe have some good food, but your bathrooms were a little dirty, or maybe your health score wasn't where it's supposed to be. Well, this is not the time to roll the dice on a place that's, you know, maybe shifty in their, their safety standards. So what, you know, yes, we're in a time right now where everything is shifting, but all it's doing is putting it back on your reputation. You have you have only your reputation to stand on right now, and I'm I'm proud that you know, my team has built a company that we know our trucks are going to be running. You know they're going to be clean. You know we're going to show up when we say we are. We have community support from people, um, both from produce and our ice cream company. But if you don't have that, this is not the time to build that, and so it's going to be tough for a lot of people. Yeah, I agree with that. And the other thing I want to talk about trend, and I agree with you, people raided the soup, the all the tuna fish, all the stuff that's sort of packed away, and I get it, it's shelf-stable and it lasts a long time, but you basically have robbed your entire household of any nutrients, and so, mm-hmm. you know, are really powerful nutrients. And so, you know, one of the things that this whole thing is going to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to help everyone that listens in who's a food and beverage entrepreneur, and Eric's on his way there, you know, and I know you've suspended your subscription box to people's homes for fruits and vegetables, but you've already started this model of being able to deliver it to people's doorstep. People mm-hmm. are going to start getting more comfortable with grocery stores being delivered, the groceries being delivered to their house through ordering stuff online, food and beverage in particular, and coming to their house, paying the shipping, whatever it is, the convenience of getting it because no one wants to go outside. So we're going to start seeing people get more comfortable. Are they still going to go to grocery stores? Are we going to get that trend back? Yes, but there's this shift in comfortability. You know, I can see the Amazon trucks. As I go walk the dog, I walk, you know, two to three miles twice a day with the dog just to give him exercise. And I I can't stand being locked up for too long. I'm like, I have to keep moving probably while I'm an entrepreneur. But it's, um, but there's literally Amazon trucks and delivery trucks flying through the neighborhoods and delivering food and products and, and everything else. So I would find it harder to believe that people are buying clothes or whatever. They're most likely buying food right now because that's what we need and they don't want to go to the grocery store. So it's just kind of crazy. And all the people that I mentor or work with or other people that have been on this podcast or people I do co-packing for, or we do co-packing for, excuse me, at Food Service Partners, like they're seeing this upswing in online sales. You know, that's not an accident. You know, that's not just temporary. People are starting to get comfortable with getting their food that way because they don't want to go out and be exposed. But what the unintended effect is going to be is that, yes, life will go back to normal. Yes, we will be able to go to grocery stores again eventually. But the consumer has just got a whole new level of comfortability of not having to go pick their own produce or pick their own products. Someone's doing it for them. So... You know, that's, uh, you know, that's pretty cool. And I think you're in a great space with that, Eric. We, we hope so. And we're just, like we said, we, we're constantly a company that just adapts. But, you know, right now we're in survival mode and that's all you do is adapt. Um, and I, I think what you touched on really circles back to something you said earlier about, well, how do these startups and how do these small guys do it? Because you're going to see, you know, this small cafe or this small cookie company or whatever, trying to compete with what Amazon is selling. 
And the, the truth of that is, is you can't, not head to head. You're not apples to apples competing on that. So, so don't do it your way. Fine. There's no right or wrong way to do it. You know, for, for us, a great example was we got a little bit of pushback at the start because we don't have an online ordering platform for chefs to go in and type up their orders and send it all automated that goes over to a truck to load. And that's not our model. And it really wasn't in our price point to create that. So I didn't. We just we create order guides and paper for people. And if a chef has a question, he calls me. And if you can text, you can text, you literally can text my cell phone and order and your truck shows up. So we just adapted in different ways and knowing that, no, I, I can't compete with these giant broadliners and I can't. So what can I do and in what way can I compete with that? As it turns out, a lot of chefs don't really like those long, large order platforms because they you either have technical issues or you have a hard time finding something or you want something, but you want it in a different pack size or you want whatever that is. So when I we tell new customers, hey, just text us an order. They're like, yeah, yeah, but how do I officially do it? I'm like, no, just just text me an order. Well, it'll show up. Don't worry about it. And call me if you have any questions. And so there's a whole world of endless possibilities for, you know, startups, entrepreneurs, whoever, who are trying to compete in this world that's going more mobile with saying, look, the way that the big giant that you're competing with is doing it not, may not be the best way for you. And that's okay. And so, Erica, my last question as we, we sort of take it away, and then I also want you to add in anything that you feel is important, because um, I want to be respectful of your time as well, is, I mean, how, I mean, right now, the biggest thing we can do as entrepreneurs is creating hope and stability and stuff like that. And you said you're about 10% of your normal revenue. So through this situation, what we're going through, how are you creating hope uh, in your own life? Uh, that's a really good question. And, and some days are easier than others. Some hours are easier than others and we won't sugarcoat that. It's, it's not pretty, but I, I have always dealt with whatever issue I had in life, stress or relationships or money, whatever. I, I just work. That's who I am. I just get to work. And whether I'm getting a paycheck this month or not, I'd still rather be working because if I'm not, I'm not one, there's no chance of me getting better. And, and two, you, I think probably you sim understand similarly as an entrepreneur, your mind wanders. So for me, I need a focus and I need, and work is that focus and, and family time is that focus and just sticking with those and staying busy helps. Now the, the reality is that, yeah, we're going to lose some companies that, that, but that just happens whether there's an outbreak or not. That's just, that's capitalism. That's the society. That's how this works. And our hope is that we're just not one of them. And so going to work, we've going in every morning and seeing my team show up and knowing that on the inside, they're probably heartbroken, but they've got smiles on their face because we get to produce ice cream today. And that's fun. It keeps me going. Those guys keep me going and have being around a good team, whether it's in our warehouses or the, you know, watching the local Facebook groups of people saying, Hey, don't forget about Eric. He's got ice cream delivery starting this week. There, you got to find hope. You have to look for it and you have to grasp onto it as hard as you can. And I, it, I try to put it in perspective. We, we're, we're healthy. My family is healthy. I have my family. I have a house. We have a, we're very blessed in a lot of things. And, and then looking going forward, what does that mean for us? Well, it means maybe our, some of our competitors are going out of business. Uh, we've actually seen one close in the area and, and they may rebound. They may not. But we know that 
whatever happens on the backside, the people who survive this are going to be a lot stronger than they were when they started and stronger will open up opportunities. So I I've got to put everything in perspective for me. I know I need X number of dollars to keep the lights on at the warehouse, but we're a small guy. I know the big broadliners probably need a hundred times that. So they're hurting just as much as we are and they employ a lot of really great people. So you know, we'll take it day by day like we always have. What do we need to do for business today? What do we need to do? And and we'll ride out and find hope where we can. And we, we've found hope in our faith, in our families, and in our communities. And right now, that's all we have. And thank you, Eric, for taking the time today amongst all of this to, to do the interview with us. And I really appreciate it. And I look forward to getting you back on um, in the next few months so we can talk about how we all got through this and, and look in the rearview mirror and, and lessons learned and, and back at our businesses as usual. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're excited to get through this. We're, we're happy and, and just thrilled that you reached out to us to have this chat. We're happy to do it anytime. And, and like you said, we very much look forward to having this conversation on the back end instead of in the middle of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, as I wrap up, I just want to let the audience know that you can find Forerunner Foods. It's forerunnerfoods.com. And you can find Forerunner Foods on Instagram and Facebook. It's exactly how it sounds. F-O-R-E-R-U-N-N-E-R-F-O-O-D-S. Uh, so Forerunner Foods. Uh, there is uh, an E in it. So um, just make sure you look at You can find them online. Please follow them on Instagram, uh, Facebook. I think what you guys are doing is amazing. The other thing is everyone, anyone who's already listened to the podcast knows this, but anyone who's a new listener, Eric was also on with his Flux ice cream uh, on episode 103 or 103. And so take a listen to that as well. You can see where he was a few months ago and with the ice cream and how we did that interview and we've touched upon forerunner foods but now we really had a whole episode about it and this is just the beginning we're really going to dive in more with eric in the next few months um but we didn't get get to talk about all the things i wanted to talk about today so that always happens i have so many questions and and not enough answers so um thank you eric i really appreciate your time yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I know that's how conversations go. We, there's always a lot more to talk uh, talk through. And I've appreciated doing this with you now. Look forward to doing it more and, and look from, looking forward to hopefully seeing you at the summit. Yeah, awesome. Um, we're, we're thankfully very close. And so we can make that trip uh, should it be allowed. And and we'll go from there. We, uh, we just really appreciate being a part of this. Well, and I really appreciate it as well. Thank you, Eric. And I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Justin. All right.